Well, good morning. There's a few people out there and it caught you off guard, so let's do better. Good morning. Yeah, uh, the people of God are alive, and it's nice to know that. So uh, some of us are accustomed to sitting in a pew and uh, it not being an engaged exercise necessarily, but I invite you all to be very engaged in worship and in meeting with our Creator God. Thank you, Ryan, for those thoughts. Um, I would like for us to start off with something a little different. In this, this is uh, coming from a request that my wife has for a song she'd like to sing. And uh, how many of you know this song? It's hard to read. I'm sorry. So, yeah. What? It, what's the title? What is Die Liebe? German. Uh, it is in our. Uh, Hymns of the Church, 144 is the English song. So how many of you, I, I'd like to see a raise of hands again. How many of you could at least sing verse one on what's on the screen? How many of you could sing all the verses? A few, we would dwindle quite a bit. I have fond memories of my mother singing this song very heartily. She loved this song. Uh, why don't we uh, get your hymn books out and... Stand up and let's sing uh, one verse off of the screen in German, and then let's, yes. Hymns of the Church, 144, is that not it? So I'm wrong. Well, help me find it then. For God so loved us? Okay. So if we're okay with 144, we will sing that one. I had attempted to find it. Okay, very good. So let's sing one verse in German. And if I mispronounce words, please uh, just know that I am not a native German. And uh, the words are just what they are. God is the Liebe, lasst mich erlesen. God is the Liebe, er liebt auf mich. Drum sag ich noch einmal, God is the Liebe, God is the Liebe, er liebt auf for God so loved us, he sent the Savior. For God so
Americans. Always love the happy chatter. It means there's friendship and fellowship happening. So bless you in that. In some ways, our service is a little bit disconnected in the different components this morning. I sometimes marvel at the way there are connections when it's not planned to be so, and yet they're there. Uh, today, I don't know that the connections are quite as strong between the scripture reading and the uh, devotional and what I would like to share, but there is a connection in that uh, Ryan shared a very important foundation of thought, and that goes along with the sermon, but in a different way. This, what I'm going to talk about is also a very important foundation. You see the topic on the screen. By way of introduction to that, uh, 20-something years ago, uh, 2000, no, it's right at 20 years, almost exactly. Uh, next week will be 20 years that I was ordained, and in the following few months after that, in working with James, uh, and later that year, Tony was ordained as deacon here, the three of us together worked on developing a list of topics that ought to be covered regularly. And so for a number of years, we did that in approximately a two-year rotation. We added some things that stretched it out and got mixed in. And about 10 or 15 years into that, it kind of faded out. And my spreadsheet has a big segment of blanks where these weren't covered as often. So recently, Dean and Tony and I have talked uh, about this, and we would like to renew that attempt at covering things that ought to be talked about. I was kind of jolted to a little bit of a reality check when I recently was talking to one of our young people and discovered that they did not remember me addressing the topic of baptism in recent times. I'm like, oh. So it's like, you maybe don't even know what I think about some of this and what my understanding is. And what I think is really not that important other than I hope I have a biblical understanding. And so my attempt this morning is to present a biblical perspective on this. Uh, does anybody here know what happened on June 20, 2004? I'm going back into history here. And I'm not offended if you don't, but John and Zach, you have any idea what we did that day? You're probably getting there because of this now. Yeah, that was the day we baptized Jonathan and Zach. And uh, that was, I have that sermon. And as I was looking back at studies that I've done on baptism, sermons I've preached on it, I actually wanted to just preach that sermon again but it didn't cover quite everything that I wanted to do. And so 
This morning's format is going to be a little different in that you're going to hear a smattering of scriptures as we try to just get a biblical snapshot of what scripture tells us about baptism. And then at the end, I don't think I'm going to have time to preach two sermons, but at the end, I want to go to Romans 6, and I want to look at some of the specifics about what it talks about uh, with baptism and new life in Christ. So that's where I want to end up. So it's going to be a little different. I'm not opening Romans 6 and telling you what it says right now. Instead, we're going to look at a variety of things uh, regarding baptism. So one of the first things I like to do is I just want to start. This is going to be very quick. It's going to be like uh, if you have all the mountain peaks in a mountain range, we're just going to come along and tiptoe across them. There's going to be a lot of depth that could uh, be gotten into. There's many things I'm going to miss uh, by intention, uh, not because it's not important, but because we don't have time uh, to go into all the nuances and things that are present with a topic like this. Another thing I should maybe say at the front end of the discussion this morning is that I am aware of and accepting of the fact that not everybody is going to have the exact same perspective on this topic. There are going to be some things where there's some deviation, and the reason for that is because there are th some things in Scripture that are not just plainly laid out in every detail. So there are portions that are extremely clear, and on those we ought to firmly stand, and on the portions that are less clear, we need to be gracious. And we will encounter that in the topic of baptism. So let's go to the Old Testament briefly. Uh, baptism, as we hear it and think of it, we frequently uh, view it in the New Testament light as it ought to be. But it does have an Old Testament connection. In Hebrews 9, verse 10 you have the phrase divers washings or various ceremonial cleansings, what's talked about. And if you go to the, the Old Testament, you will find that. If you go in Leviticus 11, 15, 16, uh, in through there, there are a lot of specifics about this is how you must wash to be clean in this situation. And then you do it again and again. In the tabernacle, there's a brass laver where the priests would always wash before they would go into the presence of God. And so that's one of the, what I have here on the screen is I'd like for you to just see some of the contrast between what happened in the Old Testament ceremonial cleansing and what's present in the New Testament. So first of all, in the Old Testament washings, like all of the ceremonial law, it was temporary satisfaction and appeasement for what God required to come to him in a satisfactory manner. In the New Testament, there is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that removes that temporary aspect and repeated sacrifices and all the repeated things. And it's not that things are never repeated in the New Testament in the church. There are things we do repeatedly. But the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. It was his atonement that made it possible for us to be connected and right with God. We don't have to always come back and over and over, Jesus does not have to die again. We come under his blood. Now we repent as often as we need to, 
That may be repeated, should be repeated, but the sacrifice is not repeated. And in a similar fashion, New Testament baptism, uh, in fact, if you look at some of the early church writings, some of them are very strong that you should not get baptized again. Uh, I think that a true Christian baptism once is what's needed. It satisfies what the Lord has asked. So we talked about the repeated practices, one-time event. Uh, the Old Testament ceremonial law was deeds-focused. The New Testament baptism and the whole package focuses on the transformation of the person who comes to God. And it's not that I am now doing these things to continually be clean. No, as a result of having encountered Jesus and being transformed, I change what I do. It affects the way I live, but it's like the equation got flipped. I'm not doing things to be clean. I'm doing things because I'm clean and I love Jesus and I'm serving him. I'm following the master. The Old Testament washings were very detailed in their form. Very, very specific instructions. Uh, look at the book of Leviticus. It's the Levitical code. It tells you how to do these things uh, for the priests. Uh, what do we have in the New Testament? Well, Matthew 28, right before Jesus ascended, he said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them. He didn't say you have to do it forward, backward, uh, he didn't say all the other specifics that some people do. He, he, it's just baptize. And it's one of those things, one of those areas, I think, where the clarity is we need, there needs to be baptism. Exactly what it looks like, there's going to be some differences in understanding. So let's just hit a little bit of the highlights here. And my outline is very different than I normally have. Typically, I like to have scriptures on the screen. I want you to read them with me. Uh, today, it's going to be a much simplified version, and you're just going to see the heading and hear me read scriptures. So there's various baptisms, various baptismal references, and uh, just follow through as we start now the journey in the New Testament. We have the reference, we have the pattern of the old, the need for cleansing, Jesus retained a few ceremonial types of things. Baptism is one of them. Why? I don't know if I know all the whys, and I'm kind of content to not have to know it. But he did say, baptize. Uh, people need to get wet with water when they come to know Jesus. That's, that's what it, uh, we've been commanded to do. So let's look. There's some other pieces of, of the puzzle as it unfolds. And the first one is John's baptism. John the Baptist had a baptism that's very distinctly different from what Jesus commanded and from what the early church practiced. Listen to some of these verses that uh, highlight that difference. Matthew 3, I'm breaking into a sentence, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee the wrath to come. So this is a baptism of repentance that John has. Uh, he also said in the same chapter, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance. And now here's the distinction. But after me 
But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Mark 1.8 is something similar. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Acts 19.3. Now this is the apostles reflecting back. Uh, wait, this is actually... Uh, this is the story in which people had been baptized but did not have the Holy Spirit. And this is the interaction surrounding that. He said unto them, Unto then what were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, guess what happened? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the story unfolds that they did receive the Holy Ghost. So one thing that's of, of note in John uh, chapter 4, the first two verses, and this is just a mention, not really anything more than that, but it's noted that Jesus baptized except he didn't baptize, it was disciples doing it under him. And, and that's noted there. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, then that's in parentheses, verse 2, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. So what had happened is Jesus had instructed his disciples to, to do the baptizing. At that point, it was similar to John's baptism. It, Jesus had not yet died, and yet it was a mark of these are people who are now following Jesus. Similarly, the people who were baptized by John, that was a mark that they were followers of John the Baptist. If I'm talking fast, bear with me. I need three pages for four pages for a 45 minute sermon. I have 10 pages, and you're not going to be here for four hours. So I'm trying to catch the important things. So let's go to Jesus' command. We have Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And then in Acts 1.5, we have a similar rendition, a parallel passage. It's a Jesus' ascension. And he says this, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So in this transition, Jesus is leaving, and he says, here's what I want you to do. Baptism is a part of it. And furthermore, not too long from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a way that you've, the world's not seen this before. The Comforter is coming to replace my presence on earth. So that was Jesus' command, his instruction, and it continues for us today that that is a part of, of what we are to do as people come to Christ. They are to follow through in baptism. This was taught by the apostles. And here again, I'm going to have a smattering of, of scriptures. Uh, Acts 2, this is a... I love this passage. My journey in understanding, and I'll get to some of this, it's been a fairly lengthy one. Some of you know Harry Brenneman. Uh, years ago when he moved to South Carolina where we lived, 
uh, I respected him as a Greek scholar and as someone who had spent a lifetime studying the Bible. And I valued his input. And I was wrestling with this whole thing of baptism and what it looks like and what do some of these scriptures mean. And he was one of those people that helped this passage uh, become more meaningful to me in Acts 2 and what happened at the end of the Pentecost sermon. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were ad there were added to the church unto them about 3,000 souls. Excuse my misreading there. So that's what happened at Pentecost. We see that example. If you go to Acts 10, you see that this now goes beyond the Jews and that salvation story, including baptism, is now a part of the story of Cornelius. Verse 47, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. The wording there is one of the, the places that I have gone in my study is just looking at the, the order of events. And what I have found is that it's not always consistent. The Lord in his biblical record has some variation in the way that uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and in connection to baptism, this case of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit was evident in their lives before the baptism occurred. So it's taught by the apostles. It was practiced by the church. This was an ongoing thing. The Samaritans, uh, the Samaritan story that we'd referenced earlier uh, in Acts 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. And no, that was not the same story I referenced earlier. That was Acts 19. Uh, apologize there. This is a different one. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. As they went on their way, they came to certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And that follows the story of him saying he believes. Uh, Philip had asked him, do you believe what you're reading? And yes, this was the result. Acts 9, we have the story of Saul, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Now here, I don't want to get uh, lost in the weeds, but I'd like for you to follow with me a little bit and just hear some of the variations that happened. And what I'm trying to do is to go through the scriptures and to point out the things that are very clear so that we don't necessarily get hung up on the things that are a little less clear. And so, uh, yeah, so hear me in my words. If you have questions in what I'm saying, uh, 
I recognize that there's ditches that can be easily stepped into and I hope to avoid them. If it sounds like I'm in one, uh, come help get me out, but my attempt is not to be there. So the statement I wanna make here is that baptism was expected in conversion, but it seems in the, in the biblical narrative, it was not always the focus of the story. Belief was the focus and baptism was expected. So we have omissions in the story. It doesn't always say that they were baptized, but we assume that they were because that was the practice of the church. So listen to some of these verses. I'm just pointing them out so that to help us keep this clarity of belief in Jesus, the focus is Jesus, and we follow his command to baptize, even though it's not always stated here. So it not, let me say this, not all instances of conversion specify when baptism occurred, although we assume that it was a part of the story because Jesus commanded it. Acts 4, in the first several chapters here, this is mixed in with the Pentecost story and other very plain instances of baptism. Notice the omissions here. 4.3, and they laid hands on them and put them in hold to the next day. Peter and John are preaching. They have been arrested, for it was now eventide. And so now Peter and John are in prison. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed. So Peter and John went to jail. It says they believed, and here's the rest of the verse. And the number of them was about 5,000. And so the, the, the story, what we're reading into it there, we don't know exactly how it happened, is that they believed, and at some point, it says that they were added to them. Uh, there was a baptism that occurred in there. Chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There's people coming to Christ. It doesn't tell us exactly what all's happening. Acts 6, verse 7. This is right after the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how people are scared and some people are refusing to associate with the church. The next verse says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So I'm going to give you a similar statement to what I just did uh, about the stories. Now I'm going to focus on the instruction. Not all instructions for, for salvation include baptism, although we assume that it was part of the story because Jesus commanded it. So I want to point out a couple of those scriptures. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is admonishing people in another sermon, "'Repent ye therefore and be converted,' that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Romans 10, 9, a very strong statement of what it means to believe and come to Christ, and yet baptism is not mentioned. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich upon, unto all that call upon him. 
for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so a beautiful picture of belief. Remember I said the focus is on belief. And we're not given all the specifics about what the process was. And I think in that the Lord gives us some grace. And there's going to be some variation in the churches. But we come to him. We call on the name of the Lord. We follow him in obedience. So now I want to step around and maybe on and in a little bit of a sticky one that I know there are differences. And uh, so let's take a look at a couple verses. First Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have the verse in John 16, 16, it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So is it the believing or the bapti baptizing that saves a person? And this is one that I find uh, variation in numerous places. And I think it's one of the areas where we have to be gracious. I didn't bring the book along, uh, and I haven't heard David Burso address the topic recently, but a uh, number of years ago when he wrote, Will the Real Heretics book stand up? He had a segment in there that I found interesting. He was talking about what happened with baptism in, through the early church uh, and church history, and then what the Anabaptists did in the 1500s. And his comment was that the Anabaptists did not verbalize baptismal beliefs in the, or the beliefs about baptism in the same way that the early church did, but the way that they actually practiced it and lived it would have been very, very close to what the early church did because they restored the, it had to be voluntary, it had to be believer baptism, and they put the focus back on it not being sacramental. So the way that they talked about it was somewhat different, and I find that that has tended to be true even today. In our churches, the way that we think and talk about baptism in some ways is different from the way that the early church did. But my push this morning is that we go back to what the Scripture says, and we, come, we have the focus that Jesus intends for us to do when it comes to baptism. So what, uh, the summary that David, uh, David Burso had in that that I resonate with is if you read in the early church writings, you will find a, an emphasis on bapti baptism being the thing that saves, uh, regenerational baptism is a term often associated with that. What you had when you get to the 1500s is you were dealing with a state church that had made baptism a sacrament where grace was understood to be conveyed just through the act of doing it. That's what sacramentalism is. And so it's really the foundation of why the Anabaptist portion of the Reformation stepped away from them and became known as rebaptizers. As they said, well, wait. That's, that's not what the Bible says. Luther and Zwingli, they were reformers, but on the matter of baptism, they continued with infant baptism. In fact, uh, Zwingli said, well, yeah, that's in his discussions with Grable and, 
the other Blorock, I believe it was, he said, well, you're right. The Bible does say it should be believers. We probably ought to change the infant baptism we're doing, but it's so entrenched we can't. And Zwingli drew a line and intellectually agreed with them and practically said, I'm not doing it. Uh, it appears that he was fearful for what that may have done for his position of power in Zurich. Don't know that for certain, but it would appear that that was significant. So what happened in the, I derailed a little bit, I'm coming back here. The wording, the picture that the Anabaptists would use is that believing, repenting, confessing, baptizing, it's all of that together that saves you. It's not just a focus on, oh, you're not really saved until you do this. It, no, it's the expectation is that we do all of this. It's a part of what the Lord wants us to do. So what does that look like? I'll tell you my story, and you can maybe help appreciate why I have wrestled with this, particularly for those who are fairly strong on the regenerational baptism. I grew up in a setting where baptism was expected but disconnected from the new birth experience. It was expected and at that point was mainly utilized as a marking of joining the church. So for me, I fell under heavy conviction at age 11. And there's no question in my mind that I met the Lord there in the basement of Center Church. My life was transformed. The burden of guilt and sin was gone. I knew I had been changed. And yet it was three or four years later until I was baptized. That was the practice of that church. And so for me to become really, really strong and say, you must be baptized to be saved, doesn't compute with what I have myself experienced. And so I want, here's why I want to continue understanding biblically. What does that mean? Okay, so what I think it means is that we come to the Lord. We know he expects us to follow through in baptism. And so what I have tried to do, and this is where uh, one of the young people told me they weren't sure what I thought on this. When we have people come to the Lord, I want to see them become baptized as soon as it is feasible for that to happen. Uh, one of the things that's not talked about much in Scripture, there's one little phrase I'll point out here. Uh, in Acts 2, in that story I told you about, when Peter answered them, what must, you do, what must we do to be saved? He answered and he said, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. The next phrase is, and with many other words he exhorted them. So you have this sermon, they have this confession of faith, and we want to follow. Peter stands there and talks to him for a while. Don't know what he said. We have one phrase. There was some kind of instruction. And then after that, they were baptized. And what you find also in the early church writings is that continued. Now, by the time you got to the time of Constantine and, and beyond that, it had become the whole salvation picture changed. But apparently what happened within the church, beginning there in Acts 2, is that instruction was connected with baptism. We don't know exactly what it looked like, and it's one of the areas I say we need to give each other a little grace. But it is there. 
And so I think that's a part, it's appropriate. You know, you think about what was happening in the, the Jewish culture. They knew uh, the Old Testament scriptures. They had that. They observed Jesus' teaching. And yet the apostles are helping them understand what the Old Testament scriptures meant. They go out into the Gentile countries. What does that look like? There's a lot of teaching that has to happen. Now, obviously, those people were not perfectly spiritually mature. You, you read the epistles and you find out Paul was routinely setting them straight. He was having to continue instructing the churches and teachings. So it's not like this teaching, you have to match up to a certain level of maturity. Oh, now we can finally baptize you. No, but there does need to be reasonable knowledge and understanding of what is happening. I've heard, uh, uh, I believe it was Shanna's dad, Val Yoder, uh, he talked about this and his understanding of how do you know when someone, particularly a young person, is ready for baptism? And I think I'm getting it wrong, so somebody who knows may have to set me straight on this, but it was something along this line. The person being baptized ought to understand the various baptisms and what they mean. So they ought to have an understanding of what water baptism is and the things surrounding that. They ought to have an understanding of spirit baptism. They ought to have an understanding of what it might mean for the baptism of suffering and death. And really what that summarizes is just an understanding that coming to Christ and following Christ means I give everything to him. And I follow him even if it means suffering and death. And so that, that's maybe addressing a little bit the nuance of how do we work with younger people that are coming to the Lord and when's the right time to baptize them. Those are some things that could maybe be used as gauges. I'm going to have to keep going. Uh, jumped ahead of myself just a little bit. I want to read a few scriptures here with the water spirit and baptism of suffering and death. Matthew 3.11, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Acts 1.5, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That's the spirit baptism. Obviously, the earlier ones we talked about, many of them talked about water baptism. And then in the, the baptism of suffering and death, if you go back to uh, Jesus' interaction with the sons of thunder, the apostles, James and John, they wanted to call down fire from heaven because the village didn't accept Jesus and his disciples. And no, 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 that, yes, it was close to that. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little confused in the story. This is in response then, it was right around that same time that their mother came and said, I want my sons to sit on either side of you at the kingdom. And this was part of Jesus' response to them. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am connected with? They say unto him, we are able. And uh, yeah, in verse 23, you shall indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. 
it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared to my father. So Jesus used this language there in talking about the suffering. Uh, and he, he says, that's what I'm going to experience. And he says, they will as well. So let's talk about just a couple other things here as I attempt to wrap up. Uh, timing of baptism, following conversion, not before conversion, but connected to conversion. So I'm going to give some grace in what that time frame looks like, but baptism is a result of conversion. And after conversion, it's connected to it. It's connected to biblical instruction, as we already talked about. Uh, One other one that I missed here on my screen. I'd just like to read this. This is a, another wonderful passage that we can't ignore. I have to at least mention it. That is that baptism is the means by which God marks someone coming into his family, into his church. And so listen to a couple of these verses here. Uh, Acts, you know, we're no longer orphans. You're going to hear some of this in the Galatians verses. We're not orphans outside of God's family. We have become a part of God's family. In fact, he says, you've actually become Abraham's seed. In the Old Testament, it was a family, a family group, Abraham's descendants. In the New Testament, it's followers of Jesus who believe on him. So listen to a few verses here. Acts 2 uh, it just declares, I'm not going to read, it just declares that those who were added to the number that as they were being saved, they were added to the church. Galatians 3 and 26 and following, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither, neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Wonderful, glorious. We're a part of God's family, and baptism is a mark in that process of becoming a part of his family. So let's look at the mode of baptism. Here again, this is very, very short. There are people that have uh, varying practices and beliefs. Uh, I grew up where pouring was the norm. I think many of you have grown up in a setting like that. As I was a young man and wrestling through this thing of what does baptism look like? What should it be? I went through a stage where it was like, you know what, I just think this has got to be immersion. And that was where I was at for a while. And then I encountered some teaching that explained pouring and the use of that in a way that made sense to me. I was like, oh, okay, I hadn't heard that one. That, that actually does make sense. And then uh, I as I encountered uh, history, the Anabaptists, when they first started, and I forget which one it was, Blaurock uh, was just convinced he had to be baptized. I believe it was Grable, and he 
told uh, George Blower, baptize me. And they were in a house. It was not an immersion. It was a pouring. And that's probably one of the reasons we've been influenced that way as an Anabaptist people is that was our roots. I don't know how many of you have seen this, but this actually was uh, something I encountered in my journey that I find very interesting. The Didache or the teachings of the apostles. It's one of the earlier known writings of uh, following the apostolic age, don't exactly know the year. This particular translation uh, was by Tim Souter, where he translated from the Greek. And much of what you have in this little booklet is reiteration of what Jesus taught. A lot of it is repetitive to what we have in Scripture. <clears throat> but there's one section that is not in Scripture, and I'm not putting it at the level of Scripture. I'm just saying this was the understanding that the early church had. Four verses here. And concerning baptism, in this manner baptize, when you have gone over these things, which uh, I take it to mean that's instruction, when you've gone over these things, there's teaching that's happening. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now it goes to mode. In running water. But if you do not have running water, baptize in other water. If you are not able to use cold water, use warm. And if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And before baptism, the one baptizing and the, uh, and the one deep to be baptized should fast, as well as any others who are able. And you should instruct the one being baptized to fast one or two days before. I find that fascinating in, in an understanding of at least that particular writer and the description that he observed in the early church. And so, you know, does that mean we have to do exactly like that? Probably not. Uh, for those of you new to our church here, I think you'll, I hope you will find that we attempt to stay close to the, as close to the biblical instruction as we can and historical. So here at Wellspring, we have practiced both immersion and pouring. Recent years, most baptisms have been immersion. We have allowed that to be more a matter of choice by the person getting baptized. And in the case with their, if they're younger, also in connection with their parents' prefer, uh, preferences. So that is, that is the way, uh, I really don't have a lot more to say on mode. The Lord commands, be baptized. And he did not plainly spell out in scripture, it must be this way. We have the early church writing that gives a little indication of how it may have been. So let's follow in obedience, the clear, give grace in the less clear, and I will say, even in the less clear, let's attempt for biblical truth. So I'm going to wrap up by going to Romans 6. And I'm going to mostly just read, but before I do that, I'd like to just tweak our thinking a little bit with alive unto Christ and dead unto sin. And in this passage, you will hear it being talked about that we're baptized in death. We associate with Christ's death. And we, after baptism, 
are alive unto Christ. At the time that I had put this sermon together in 2004, my grandmother had just passed away. And I hadn't been to a funeral in a little while, as I recall. Uh, and I was struck with the reality of how dead a dead body is. And that's what was on my mind as I was preparing the sermon and as I was reading the scripture. You know, death and life, there are two key thoughts and words in this passage. Death is a time of separation and grief. It's very raw. It's very real. It's very painful. And yet we must temper it with the knowledge that death is the doorway to life eternal. Did you ever think about it? What would have happened if God wouldn't have made a way out of this old world and we'd just be trapped here? I don't mean to be morbid, but I'm glad there's a doorway out of here. And while I don't look forward to the process, I look forward to going through the door. In the same way, just as dead as a dead body is, we are to be dead to sin. We no longer think the way we used to. That dead body can't think like it did. It can't walk. It can't talk. It can't move. It can't plan. It can't do anything the way it used to. We're supposed to be dead to sin. And alive unto Christ. Just as alive, the contrast of a living body where we think, plan, move, live, we are alive unto Christ in all those ways. Listen to the words of Scripture as I wrap up here. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and the body of sin might be destroyed, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. That is loaded.
and it deserves unpacking, but we will save that for another time. I thank God for his wonderful gift of salvation. I thank you for going on the journey with me and rapid succession of going through the scriptures and looking at, at baptism and how, how we practice. We didn't really get into the why. It's fairly simple. God commanded it. And so let's do it. And it's a sign. It's a, a, it's a mark of someone coming into the church and choosing to follow. Just like the people who followed John the Baptist publicly identified and said, we agree with your teaching and we're repenting. And we're going to follow you. It's a mark for the person today who says, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my Lord and master. And we follow him into baptism and make that mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Your salvation plan is beyond our comprehension. We don't understand everything about it, and yet we're grateful. We are thrilled that you have given us the opportunity to be made right to you, with you in relationship, to be made alive unto you once again. Oh God, we need your help. We cry out for your spirits empowering to live in our hearts with power, that we yield to his promptings, that we understand your word and your will, and we follow you at all costs. Lord, I just pray that the obedience that, you, that we have coming from our hearts is not one of mechanism or just needing to do that or having to do that, but one that is just growing and thriving from a love relationship with you. Draw us close to you. We love you. We thank you. We want our lives to honor you. And so I just pray that you would be with each person here. Bless them. Meet them where their needs are. And I pray that you would give them much wisdom and understanding in what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.